Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Una mattina mi son svegliato, oh bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, 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 una mattina. We're listening to one of many versions of the Italian folk song Bella Ciao, linked with the memory of the wartime resistance. This 1964 recording was by the French actor Yves Montand. His Italian parents had left their country to escape Mussolini's regime when he was a child. The popularity of songs like Bella Ciao helped express and entrench the anti-fascist consensus in post-war Italy, despite the bitter Cold War divide between Italian communism and Christian democracy. In recent times, however, the government in Rome has included several politicians who have much more in common with Mussolini and his black shirts than with the Italian resistance. If Silvio Berlusconi was the forerunner of politicians like Donald Trump, we can only guess which political figures will follow in the footsteps of the Italian far-right leaders Matteo Salvini or Giorgia Meloni. Our guest today for a discussion of post-war Italian politics is John Foote. He's a professor of modern Italian history at the University of Bristol and author of several books, including The Archipelago, Italy since 1945. Many people on the Italian and international left as well came to look back at Italy's moment of liberation from 1943 onwards as a lost opportunity for revolution. Do you think that was a realistic evaluation or was it a case of wishful thinking? I think the the period 1943 to 5 with the resistance was very attractive and fascinating to the left in general. And of course, many British people took part in it directly, partly in the liberation of um, the sort of official British army liberating Italy. So there were a lot of people who then came back and, for example, Dennis Healy, who became a very prominent Labour Party politician, was in the liberation of Italy. But also a number of um, British radicals took part in the in the resistance itself, in the partisan war. I'm thinking of someone like Stuart Hood, who was a novelist and um, later became actually controller of the BBC, was a partisan. So there was a very close kind of connection between many people who, who were connected to that experience of a uh, anti-fascist armed resistance and the liberation of Italy from the Nazis and the anti-Italian fascism at the same time. The idea of revolution coming out of that, I think there's a somewhat mythical element to that. There were lots of people involved in the resistance who were revolutionaries, lots of communists. In fact, you could probably say the communists were the major sort of driving force. But it was actually a very complicated and varied movement with Christian Democrats, liberals, monarchists, and all kinds of people, and quite a divided movement as well. And many of those people simply wanted to restore democracy. Some of them wanted um, a radical form of democracy, and some of them wanted a social revolution. And some of them wanted those things at the same time. And there's been a lot of work on that. I'm thinking particularly of Claudio Pavoni's magisterial book, uh, A Civil War, which came out with in an English translation with Verso a few years ago. So whether that was a revolutionary moment is very debatable. There's no doubt it inspired lots of people 
in, obviously in the Italian left, but also internationally, as had the Spanish Civil War. And there are very strong connections between the two experiences. In fact, some of the same people were involved in both. But many people looked to Italy after 1945 as a place of radical change, in part because of its huge Communist Party, which we'll come back to, and also because the publication of, for example, the writings of Gramsci and the influence they had on large parts of the non-Italian and Italian left after 1945. So that experience was very important for many different kinds of ideas after the Second World War. Why were the Christian Democrats able to remain in power without interruption from their crucial election victory in 1948 all the way through to the early 1990s? So that's a big question. The Christian Democrats were an enormous mass party with millions of members, trade union, federations, social clubs. It was like a little state, really. Why were they not out of power between 48 and 1990s? Well, there's uh, there's a number of answers to that. One answer might be they kept winning elections. They won very big in 1948, which is the big set-piece Cold War election, whether it's kind of communism or the West. And, you know, that's set up as what's one of the great Cold War elections in post-war Europe, where there's a kind of clear choice between a left that's very much still wedded to the Soviet model and a Christian Democrat party that's very much wedded to, not to a kind of consumerist US model, but to a Western, non-communist, anti-communist model. Italy stands at the crossroads of history as her millions of qualified voters stream to the polls to determine whether she shall remain a free republic or sink silently behind the Iron Curtain in the grey zone where slave nations are governed by Moscow's will. This American newsreel gives a flavour of the rhetoric used by the US government, the Christian Democrats and the Vatican in the run-up to the 1948 election. In which both Western powers and Russia exert strong pressure. Trieste, off on a political pawn, again finds itself an issue in the East-West struggle. The United States has advocated its return to Italy. Russia has flatly rejected the proposal. Citizens hear arguments from both sides. 574 deputies and control of the Senate are the stakes in this desperately fought election. And they win that big and they never really lose an election, although they need more allies. So one reason is, you know, the majority of Italian people didn't want didn't want to be governed nationally by the left and they kept voting for a moderate and in many ways sort of socially active Christian Democratic Party for right up to the 1990s. So a simple, you know, that kind of answer. Then there's a kind of more conspiracy theory answer, which is about the Cold War itself, which is sort of you enter into counterfactuals. If the Communist Party, the left, had won the election, would they be allowed to take power? And there's a whole series of analyses that say, you know, this was a a kind of situation that would not have been allowed to change. You would have had, say, the tanks rolling in or the US pressure and so on. So it's part of the Cold War block. And Italy is a very important part of the Cold War block. If Italy collapses, there's a domino theory that Italy's on the Cold War borders with Yugoslavia. So, you know, lots of different answers to why they, they keep winning elections. They have very strong systems of patronage and clientelism and resources. They use the state to stay in power. The left doesn't really get it act together. The left is divided. And then you've got the whole 
Cold War structures, which kind of mean that this is a sort of fixed system, as it was in other countries like Japan for this whole post-war period. Was the entry of the Socialist Party into the Italian government during the 1960s a lost opportunity for reform? So in the sort of early 60s, the Socialist Party, which had which had gone in with the Communist Party in a popular front in 1948 and had been smashed by that association and then and then pulled itself away from the Communist Party, kind of de-Stalinized itself and very much kind of moved over to a Western social democratic model. In the 60s, partly because the Christian Democrats were progressively losing votes at every election, they formed first in local government and then in national government what was called the centre-left, the centro-sinistra, and and this was a, you know, the brainchild of someone like Aldo Moro, who was a very important figure in the moderate Christian Democrat world, a thinker, uh, sort of middle of the road Christian Democrat, always looking to the left for allies. They formed this alliance first in places like Milan and then at national level. And they were big reformist ideas. The Socialist Party came in with big ideas. And some of this was really important and was actually done School reform, education reform, modernization of some of the institutions of Italy, which were in dire need of modernization, asylums, schools, universities, and so on. But a lot of this, a lot of the big plans for reform were blocked, got caught up in corruption, got um, vested interests. It's very hard in the Italian system to reform, to carry through big reforms, in part because the system set up after fascism made it very hard for power to direct things in a clear way. It was an, a very anti-fascist structure, anti the centralization of power, and also quite devolutionary as well. And so it was very hard. And, and some of the reforms were good, some of them weren't. So I wouldn't say it was a complete lost opportunity for reform, but it wasn't the transformational situation that had been promised by the socialists and in fact the socialists got kind of sucked into the system very much also in corrupt ways after the 1960s. When the communist leader Palmiro Tagliati died in 1964 what kind of party did he leave behind and how was it equipped for the era of protest that began in the late 1960s? So Palmiro Tagliati was um, was the sort of undisputed leader of the Italian Communist Party for the post-war period, but also in some ways also in under fascism where he was in exile in Moscow. Kind of extraordinary figure in many ways, some very dark aspects to his career and life. He was in Moscow throughout the time of the purges and managed to escape or not be part of that or, you know, to some extent part of the purges against others in that period. He comes back to Italy in 1944 and becomes part of the government before being chucked out in the Cold War settlement in 1948. Very strong leader, huge cult of personality around him. He was called the best, il migliore. Very strong cult around him. And and he built it, not just him, but he was the leader of an incredible mass party, more than two million members, biggest mass communist party ever to exist in a Western democracy which had you know, a cultural output, covered all kinds of areas from trade unions to sporting activities to factory sales to publishers and so on. He died in 1964 
in a place called Yalta. And his funeral is one of the most amazing moments in post-war Italian history. More than a million people come out. And he left behind a, a mass party, a party with incredible power at local level, places like Bologna, it governed and, and was very radical in terms of its governance and participatory democracy. But it was also, in some ways, an ossified Stalinist party where debate and dissent were not really tolerated. In fact, lots of people left in 56 after the Hungary invasion by the Soviet Union. Lots of others would leave in 68. So it wasn't ready for 68. It found 68 very difficult because lots of the people in 68 said were actually against the communists as well as against the Christian Democrats. The communists are part of the problem, part of the state, part of the machine, part of the establishment. It was also quite a moralistic party, quite a conservative party in terms of family and family attitudes. Certainly wasn't... um, you know, ready for radical feminism in that period. So it it really struggled. And in fact, 69, with the hot autumn, the strikes of of Turin and Milan and Genoa, really undercut the trade unions where all the communists were. And the communists were very surprised by that. So mass party, an extraordinary party, but not ready for the student movement and the workers' movement of the late 60s. One of Italy's major cultural exports in this era was the Spaghetti Western, associated above all with the director Sergio Leone. Many Spaghetti Westerns included coded references to Italian history and politics. Two of Leone's most important collaborators were the actor Jean-Marie Volante and the composer Ennio Morricone. They helped make his breakthrough film A Fistful of Dollars into a global hit. Volante and Morricone teamed up without Leone for Elio Petri's 1970 Oscar-winning political thriller Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. We're now listening to Morricone's theme tune from the movie. Volante stars as a police inspector who kills his mistress and starts planting clues that point to his guilt because he wants to prove that state officials can get away with murder. It was released just as Italy was plunged into the so-called years of lead when there was good reason to believe that far-right terrorists were operating with the complicity of the state security forces. The film evokes the atmosphere of conspiracy and paranoia that was so prevalent in that era. Volante himself was well known for his radical sympathies. He once helped the left-wing militant Oreste Scalzoni escape the country when he was accused of involvement in terrorism. The growth of collective action from 68 onwards and the electoral rise of the PCI stoked up expectations that Italy was on the brink of a major political turn in the mid-1970s. It was a time of great hope for some and great anxiety for others. Why was the ultimate outcome of that decade a reversion to the status quo ante, at least in terms of government formation? That's again a, a, an enormous question. Um, the, the Communist Party kind of made peace with... 68 and sort of went into a dialogue also the unions as well enter into a dialogue with the with the movement with the students with the workers who had kind of abandoned the unions and managed in some ways to kind of benefit from the whole wave of the left after 68 where large numbers of people were moving towards one form of left. In fact, you know, the PTI, the Communist Party vote, continues to go up and up and up. It also had an extraordinary leader at that time called um, 
Berlinguer. And uh, Berlinguer was was someone who had immense amount of charisma, but was also very, very popular with the base. And that was important at that time. And it's someone who very much spoke out against corruption and um, in the political system. So the PG kind of benefited, electorally at least, from 68 to 69 and, and, and that new wave of, of um, left-wing thought. It didn't really transform itself. It didn't really come up with lots of new ideas. And in fact, much of what it did politically was very defensive, particularly after the 1973 coup in Chile. The Berlinguer came to the conclusion that democracy needed to be defended. And that meant going into an alliance with the Christian Democrats, the so-called historic compromise. And this was a huge shock to the base of the Communist Party because, you know, the Christian Democrats have been the enemy, the sort of antichrist for many of them, and they didn't really buy into it. They kind of bought into it for reasons of discipline. Rome. The evening police patrol leaves headquarters. It's a routine exercise, but it's taking place during the tensest moment in Italian post-war history. Since March the 16th, Italy, which has known continuous economic and political uncertainty for a decade, has been without its central political figure, Aldo Moro. The Italian crisis of the 1970s reached its peak in 1978. A group of left-wing urban guerrillas called the Red Brigades kidnapped the Christian Democrat politician Aldo Moro. Moro had been engaged in dialogue with Enrico Berlinguer of the Communist Party. The Red Brigades wanted to sabotage any accommodation between the parties of Moro and Berlinguer. In the following clip from a British news report, we're going to hear from two prominent figures, Arrigo Levi, editor of the newspaper La Stampa, and Luciana Castellina, a leading member of the Manifesto Group, which criticised the Communist Party from the left. They discussed the motivation behind Moro's kidnapping and the wider political context. I believe that if there is a, a logic in the Red Brigade uh, strategy, is that of creating the need for a kind of repression by the state, which makes it no longer a democratic repression, but a totalitarian repression, with the expectation and the hope that then there is a sort of totalitarian fascist takeover, which then sends the Communist Party onto a revolutionary resistance. And then you get back the Communist Party to being the great revolutionary party. I believe it's a totally crazy and totally un- non-realistic uh, plan, but it's the only plan which, which uh, they may entertain. You have a country which since 10 years has got a left which is uh, uh, strong enough to prevent uh, the right to, to rule, but not strong enough to rule. And you have a right which is uh, bourgeoisie, which is not strong enough to prevent the left uh, to do, to have a very great role in this society and at the same time not enough to, 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 to crush it, I mean. Uh, this is the crisis of Italy, you see. I mean, the lows uh, and uh, uh, which were r- regulating the old society aren't working anymore and the news haven't been uh, the created. I believe that the fact that we have such a irresponsible extremist uh, revolutionary wing uh, partly is due to the fact that the communists uh, keep no longer the, the extremist factions under their 
uh, control. Uh, they are definitely disappointed. Uh, if you hear them speak, they will tell you that the communists are just the servants of the capitalists and so on and so forth. That's not true, mind you. It's not true. The communists remain a very peculiar uh, party. But to the extremist youth, and, and we have to, to, to cut the roots of extremism by, by, having, by having a better society. But to them, the, the communists definitely appear as a sort of social democrat, uh, servants of the capitalists. It was this perception that drove Luciana Castellina to leave the communists and move further to the left. We are critical towards the historical compromise, not only for what it, it, it might mean, but also because um, we always thought that uh, it would have never been realized. We think it's impossible to uh, be able to, um, to have at the government uh, the whole Christian democracy, which means uh, to be able to protect all the interests of uh, the electoral bulk of the Christian democracy, and in the same time uh, to protect all the interests of the electoral and social bulk of the, of the left, of the Communist Party. This altogether is impossible, you see. And uh, either one, either the other one, Will, will have to be, be, be hit, I mean, and, um, and to split. Do you think that the, that the latest move by the Red Brigades in the kidnapping of Morrow is, in fact, a success because nobody's been able to track them down? Oh, that is a, that is a success. But I must warn you because I feel that the Red Brigades followed successive strategies. Not, it wasn't always the same strategy. At the beginning, uh, four, five or six years ago, they definitely believed that they might find an electoral base, so to say, a popular base, in the dissatisfied workers, unhappy with the communists becoming socialists, put it that way, simplifying a bit. Then I believe that they thought they might find a, a basis in the new proletariat proletarian uh, students, you know, the, the, the million and a half uh, new workers, uh, etc. And, and, and I believe that they found there very small, inadequate support. And up to that time, their strategy was violence plus political action. And I think that out of the two failures, there grew as a sort of desperate last resort, uh, the resort to killing to terrorism, but terrorism is the weapon of desperation. In a sense, it is the weapon of failure. And in that sense, I believe that the, 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 even the kidnapping of, of Moro, though it is such a, an extraordinary uh, technological uh, enterprise, because it's high technology in the way of terrorism, but in the way of ide ideology, it's just, it's just failure. Aldo Moro's body was discovered in Rome on the 9th of May 1978. The circumstances of his death have inspired as many conspiracy theories as the Kennedy assassination. In political terms, it was followed by the rapid decline of the group that had kidnapped him. The partnership between Italy's two great parties that Berlinguer had sought never materialised. There's an old saying, a bit of a cliche in Italy, everything must change so that everything must remain the same. The system kind of reinvented itself. It kind of incorporated the Communist Party, which already was kind of incorporated into systems of power. And that rise in vote, although it led to huge hope of a kind of finally someone else is going to be in charge, never really happened. And although there are a series of incredible reforms that we must not forget 
in the 70s was a period of fantastic radical reform in Italy. I'll just give you one example. Uh, Italy is the first country in the world to close down its psychiatric hospitals because of reasons of treatment and moral and political reasons, not for reasons of cost, the 1978 Basaglia law. And so, you know, there was a lot of radical reform, reform of the prisons, reform of the schools, reform of the universities that created these institutions that were very democratic and open in many cases. So I don't think that should be undervalued. But the political change at the top was not happening uh, at all around that time. Was the end of the Cold War and the dissolution of the PCI in the early 90s a necessary condition for the Tangentopoli scandals and the demise of the Christian Democrats? So I was living in Italy in the... uh, I went to live in Milan in 87. And I kind of lived through all of this in Milan, which was the sort of epicentre of all of this. And then I wrote quite a lot about it. Um, I wrote about Milan, I wrote about the, uh, the Tangentopoli scandals and so on. When I first arrived in Milan, the system seemed pretty stable. You had a governing alliance at, in the centre, Rome, Christian Democrats and Socialists and a number of minor parties. It was called the Pentapartito and uh, the sort of group of parties. And they seemed, you know, to be, they'd been in power forever and they looked like they were going to be in power forever. You had someone called Bettino Craxi, who was a, a Blair before his time. I think it's important to note, and I've argued this in my books, that Italy is actually a, a forerunner of many of the changes that we see in other countries later on. It invents fascism. It invents radical forms of democracy. Its constitution is very is very radical in 1948. And Craxi is kind of Blair, 10 years before Blair. He takes over the Socialist Party. He gets rid of the hammer and sickle, replaces it with a flower. He embraces business, embraces the stock market boom of the 80s, embraces consumerism, and embraces television-type campaigning. So when I got, you know, the 87, 88, it seemed a very stable system. The parties had huge numbers of members. Many of those were fake, by the way. But actually, when you when you touched, if you got beneath the surface, what you realised quite quickly was partly this was a system built on forms of corruption, which were very scientific and very deep, deep-rooted. And partly that these parties didn't enjoy mass support. They get the vote out every election, but actually it was very, very superficial. So with the end of the Cold War, the Communist Party enters into crisis. It decides to change its name to the Democratic Party of the left. It splits for the first time. And that creates a kind of ferment, which is part of what's going on. And then there's also the the whole Cold War settlement is no longer valid. Why keep the Christian Democrats in power, these sort of, in many ways, very corrupt system of power? Why keep that in power? Why keep voting for the Christian Democrats if there's no communists anymore? There's no communist threat. So that system began to lose its legitimacy. And in that context, in 92, in Milan, magistrates start investigating business entrepreneurs, politicians, and start arresting thousands of them. I mean, it's an amazing moment. Tangentopoli means bribesville. Starts in Milan, but then goes national. And it's also based around the incredible waste and corruption of the 1990 World Cup which was held in Italy, and the preparations for that. And it's an amazing time. I I was there in Milan. 
the whole system in a few months completely collapses. People stop voting or just hate, begin hating the so-called corrupt politicians, which are also from the left, and new parties start to emerge out of the ashes of the old system, particularly a party called the Lega Nord, which I'd say is one of the first populist parties to, it's not really a party, organisations to emerge in Europe, which is an anti-political uh, regionalist organisation, which sweeps to power in the north of Italy, which is a very rich part of Europe in uh, 1992, 1993, 1994. So a lot is happening. Everything is up for grabs. A lot of politicians are being put on trial. And it feels like nothing is ever going to be the same again. That leads on that point that you're making about Italy as a forerunner leads on to the next question I wanted to ask about Silvio Berlusconi. When he first became prime minister in the 90s, Berlusconi was often seen in the Anglophone world as a kind of Italian oddity or perhaps grotesquerie. Yet almost 30 years later, in the wider context of Western Europe and North America, he seems much less exceptional as a political figure. What were the broader social and political trends that enabled him to move centre stage at that time? Berlusconi is, is a really fascinating figure in so many ways, Silvio Berlusconi, and it's someone else that I came across when I went to Italy in the late 80s and have written extensively about and saw his rise and fall and rise again and fall again. Uh, some people talk about the, the ventennio, the 20 years of Berlusconi's, the Berlusconi era, which is also a comparison with the Ventennio of Mussolini, uh, the 20 years, the double decade of Berlusconi. So let's, let's kind of go back a bit and just say a little bit about who Berlusconi was in the 80s. He was a very successful business man. He um, first made his money with housing in Milan on the back of the economic miracle of the 50s and 60s, but he also branched out very quickly into television and he kind of invented private television in Italy, which was a mixture of game shows where advertising was central, sport, sex, quizzes, uh, American soap operas, all the stuff that kind of Italians are largely being denied by the quite boring but state TV channels who, who have controlled the system for so long. So he kind of comes in on the wave. He kind of invents to some extent an alternative consumerist culture, but he also builds on something that's already there. People finally, after the post-war years, have some money to spend, quite a lot of money. There's a lot of money swirling around in Milan and elsewhere in the 80s. So that's who Berlusconi is. He, he, he very quickly builds up quite strong political connections, which everybody needs in Italy, particularly with Bettina Craxi, I've already mentioned. And they have a very strong relationship. In fact, Craxi kind of saves his TV stations on a couple of occasions from being declared illegal under constitutional and antitrust kind of legislation. When we have Tangentopoli and the system collapses, Berlusconi is still a business person, largely. But he sees both an opportunity and a threat in what's going on in 93, 94. And he thinks that the left are going to take power and it looks very much like the left are going to take power in a coalition called the Progressives. And at that moment, he does one of the most extraordinary things that's ever been done in post-war politics that we've seen actually time and time again since then. But I think is really incredibly important, innovatory, 
shocking. He forms an organization from nothing based around his uh, his businesses called Forza Italia. Doesn't really have any members. No one's ever heard of it before. It's ba- it's run by his executives in his own business. And in a matter of months, he wins an election, including lots of working class votes. Uh, the most obvious example is that he wins uh, the election in a place called Mirafiori Sud, which is the probably the most working class part of Italy, where all the fiat workers live. He wins there. So his message of anti-communism on the one side, you know, don't let the left win, they're going to take all your money away, but also himself, I'm a successful person, the personalization of politics, the use of television, the use of his TV stations to relentlessly push his message, the use of himself, and then, you know, the populist kind of tactics that we're now well aware of, of saying one thing one day, the next thing, grabbing the attention, making the election all about himself through television, there's no social media at this point, it doesn't matter, is incredibly important. And it will pattern, I think, world politics. Trump, Johnson, Farage, Orban, all of these people have taken parts of of what Berlusconi did in 1993 to 94. Often the British media looked upon him as a kind of joke figure, they talked about his sexual scandals and his silly things that he said. I think he was, in fact, on the other hand, a very serious political actor who would win elections time and time again. In 94, the first attempt at being in government was a disaster because he had no experience of central government, hadn't built solid alliances. But he did build those alliances over time and was managed to win huge majorities and govern for longer than any other politician in uh, post-war Italy for an, over a thousand days in power. In power, he didn't. Re- he wasn't really interested. He's not a Thatcher. He did, he's not interested in transforming society. He was interested in protecting his own businesses and his own person. For example, passing laws that made himself immune from prosecution twice. There are a lot of fairly grotesque moments like this. Many people compared him to an emperor or the king of a court. In fact, that's the way Johnson's been described recently, which is very interesting, I think. So I think he's someone to be studied. He's someone who lays at the origin of many of the things that have come later. He's the kind of blueprint. And once again, Italy is kind of setting trends. It's often seen as following them. I think that's completely the one wrong way around. On the, on the last part of the question, he rides the, um, a wave of social change. So the working class was declining, factories were closing, different economic models were were forming. There were many people who ran their own businesses. Fashion in Milan had replaced metalwork and the construction of trains. So he rode that kind of wave. He understood society. He understood the desire for success, the individualism of society. And he built on that. And the desire not to be bothered by politics, not to be bothered by the tax collector, the kind of do what you want kind of message that he sent out was very powerful to a certain kind of um, Italian at that time who didn't want to be governed by what they store as still, to some extent, communists or ex-communists and didn't want to be overtaxed by them. 
in that period. I, I haven't even talked about football, which is like a central part of why Berlusconi is so successful. He had a very successful football team, globally successful, which feeds into everything else. His sporting success, his political success, they're very closely linked in the way he talks. And I think that's absolutely central to understanding his, um, his rise to power. Two months after Berlusconi's first election victory, and just a week after he was inaugurated as Prime Minister, his club AC Milan won the European Cup for the third time in six years. This time they beat the favourites Barcelona 4-0. Berlusconi's political party, Forza Italia, took its name directly from the chant Italian football fans used when supporting the national team. When the post-communist Italian left finally did take office in the 1990s and after, what was its record of achievements and what became of the attempt by Rifondazioni to preserve something of the Italian communist tradition? So as I said, the, the Communist Party changed its name, a very dramatic congress. Uh, this led to a huge debate in the party. There's a fantastic film by Nanni Moretti called La Cosa, The Thing, because, you know, what were we going to do with this communist party? We can't, we're not going to call ourselves communists anymore because the communist world has collapsed. And at that moment, it did split for the first time in its history since 1921. It had been formed from a split from the Socialist Party in 1921. And here there's another split into something called Rifondazione Comunista, Communist Refoundation was formed, which took a, a fair chunk of people away from the from the old Communist Party, not, not the majority by any means, but a fair chunk, you know, up to 10, 15% in some places. And that survival of communism lasted 10, 15 years as an important player in the Italian political system. So it's important to remember that kind of communism doesn't collapse entirely. The idea of the Communist Party being a great radical post-war party, the connections to the resistance, the connections to anti-fascism, many of which have been revived by what Berlusconi was doing because Berlusconi had brought back to power or brought into power the ex-post-fascists, whatever you want to call them. And that led to immense soul-searching and debates within Italy about legitimation of, of anti-fascism. So anti-fascism enjoys something of a revival around this time as well. The part that didn't go over to Rifondazione Comunista was the majority part, and they formed a kind of moderate bloc involving also many Christian Democrats because the Christian Democratic Party also completely collapsed into different factions around this time. And they formed themselves most successfully into an electoral alliance called the Olive Lulivo, the olive tree, the olive branch, led by an ex-Christian Democrat called Romano Prodi, who was kind of the polar opposite of Berlusconi, quite boring, quite technocratic, quite sort of um, dull, but also quite solid and popular in, the, in a kind of anti-Berlusconian kind of way. And that, um, that alliance won the election in 1996 and led to a quite a radical government in Italian terms. Well, of course, it was radical in the sense that the, this was the first time the left had been in power in post-war Italy. That Cold War edict, that Cold War settlement had been overturned. 
But internal divisions, and I think we'll come to this also later on, brought that government down, which was a really interesting government, had green members. Its environment minister was a green, for example. It had the possibility of carrying out reforms also in terms of European integration uh, under Prodi. But that government was brought down precisely by Refondazioni leaving over the moderate nature of its policies. So I don't think there was a great record of achievement. I think that government was a very promising government. The way it was brought down was extremely damaging. But, you know, in the Italian system, if you're not in solid alliances, the electoral system changes at various times. You're going to lose the election. And Berlusconi understood that. And he built, while he was out of government, he built very, very solid alliances with the Lega and with the ex-fascists and with other little forces, which meant that he was going to win the election because he had those alliances at electoral level and the left was split after that. So those kind of basic alliance building things were also behind what happened in subsequent elections. The rise of the Italian Communist Party and the growing reputation of Antonio Gramsci in the Anglophone world during the 1970s had transformed Italy into a standard reference point for the British lefts. That spilled over into the more intellectual side of the country's pop music. We're listening to an early track by the pioneering electronic group Cabaret Voltaire. Cabaret Voltaire came from Sheffield, a factory town with a strong workers' movement, rather like Turin. The group's singer Richard T. Kirk belonged to the Young Communist League as a teenager. He compared it to Sunday school. The title of the song, Do the Mussolini Head Kick, and the reference to partisans kicking the corpse of Il Duce, leaves no room for doubt about Kirk's political sympathies. This was at a time when the British far right was attempting to dominate the streets. Another post-punk graduate of the Young Communist League, Green Gartside, took this infatuation with all things Italian one step further. His group Scritti Politi took its name from an edition of Gramsci's political writings. We're now listening to its debut single, Skank Block Bologna. The title referred to Gramsci's concept of an historic block of social classes and to Red Bologna, the communist stronghold in local government, as well as the main centre of autonomism in the late 1970s. Gartside later became disillusioned with Italian Marxism after reading the work of Jacques Derrida. He announced this ideological turn with a tribute to Derrida in the form of a love song. Having discarded his political inhibitions, Gartside now launched a bid for mainstream pop success. Scritti Politi had some real chart hits during the 1980s, not just in Britain, but also in the US. Gartside's loss of faith in the Marxist grand narrative and his search for mainstream popularity strangely prefigured the later evolution of the Italian Communist Party itself. But that wasn't the end of this curious subgenre. In 2013, the group Neon Neon released a concept album inspired by the life of the left-wing publisher Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli. Feltrinelli died in 1972, most likely blown up by his own bomb, 
although many on the Italian left believed that he had been murdered by the state. This is the title track from the album Praxis Makes Perfect, yet another reference to Gramsci. With its punning song titles and self-consciously retro sounds, the Felcinelli concept album might seem like an exercise in postmodern pastiche. But the band's singer Gorafris was anything but cynical when discussing the project. He looked back admiringly to the days of Feltrinelli as a time when the workers' movement was strong, there was a more egalitarian distribution of wealth, and the political horizon seemed to be open. Praxis Makes Perfect was a classic example of what the cultural theorist Mark Fisher called nostalgia for the future. During the First Republic, Italy was renowned for the combativity of its working class and its wider culture of social mobilisation. How does the Second Republic compare in that respect? It's a very good question. I mean, the Second Republic, we could most people say the Second Republic starts in with Tangentopoli, with the new with the parties collapsing. Of course, that's not an official Second Republic. The constitution remains the same, and the constitution is what patterns the way politics works, although there's been some tinkering with it. The electoral system has been kind of, firstly goes to a kind of British system, then goes back to PR, and that's all kind of political expediency. But the Second Republic, if we can call it that, after the 90s, there is a moment of working-class militancy, particularly in the face of the austerity programmes which are imposed to adhere to the requirements of the single currency, uh, which are very stringent. And there are moments of violence. There are moments. Of, there are very, very large numbers of strikes and protests against that austerity. But this is the kind of dying moments of the great organised working class struggles, which began in the late 60s and perhaps even earlier. And there was a wave of strikes and organ- and great reforms won. Like you couldn't really be sacked from big companies without a just cause. You know, very, very important rights won by the workers' movements in the 60s and 70s. But by the 90s, most many of the factories, big factories have been closed or outsourced. Different kinds of technology were coming in. Fiat was using robots. The unions have been greatly weakened. And although there was this last kind of moment, and Italy still strikes a lot, Many of those strikes were much more about corporate rights and were actually seen as, in many ways, kind of quite conservative in their the unions came to be seen as part of the system more and more in the 90s, I think, by many people, as part of a kind of system of privileges for a certain kind of people, often anti the kind of young who had to end up in jobs without rights and so on. So the Second Republic, there there are many social movements and there are many extraordinary movements. They aren't really about the working class so much. They're much more about women's rights, anti-Berlusconi movements, democratic rights, the global protests of Genoa and so on, immigrant rights. But they're not anti-war, which is a massive movement in Italy, around the Iraq war, which is absolutely huge and and mobilising. But the social, the working class doesn't exist in anything like the same form, and therefore many of the ways it used to protest make no sense anymore in the Second Republic. 
What impact has membership of the EU and the Eurozone in particular had on Italy's economy and on its political life? So Europe was always, Europe, the European Union was also always very popular in Italy in any of the polls that you want to measure. And the idea that, well, Italy had always been the heart of the project, Treaty of Rome onwards, had been one of the key nations inside the project. And it was seen as very important to the governing elites in Italy that Italy was part of the Eurozone. And Prodi was really the architect of that, Italy entering and, and fulfilling the requirements of the Eurozone, which led to privatizations, it led to offloading of the huge state sector, and it led to austerity, firstly in the nine, early 90s, but also kind of right through, and very heavy taxes, actually. One of the most extraordinary taxes I've ever seen in operation was the special euro tax that Prodi bought in, where he actually went into people's bank accounts and took bits of money off everybody's bank account. I don't think it was even possible. It seemed very sort of old-style communist in some ways. So the membership, I think the euro has not been popular um, once it was implemented, very popular in its the idea that Italy should be part of that project. And there have been very shaky moments with the euro, particularly in 2008 and sort of Berlusconi was in power there and not taken seriously by by Merkel, for example, as someone who could seriously bring in this austerity that they seemed to think was required. You know, Italy might well have been another Greece and there were some aspects where Italy was another Greece and what was required of it was and very strong interference by the EU in Italian domestic politics, whatever you think of Berlusconi. So I think the... Being in the Europe, Eurozone and even being in Europe has lost a lot of popularity in the last few years. Some of the major parties have called even directly for an exit from the Euro or the Euro has been blamed for lots of Italy's problems or even an exit from an Italy exit from Europe itself. Brexit was very important in this regard because it provided a kind of cautionary tale that it looks so terrible from the outside that many Italians kind of pull back from that, the brink of that, and even the Lega, which was probably the strongest party in in terms of calling for exit, is not calling for that anymore. It's calling for a renegotiation of the euro and so on, which is a much weaker possibility. But Brexit kind of provided something that Italy didn't want to repeat. And I think now the, the consensus is around staying in both. But that's not particularly popular. And often things are blamed on Germany and German rule in terms of eco- that's sometimes an expedient point of view, but it's also there's a truth there as well in terms of Italy's membership of um, of the EU and Italy's kind of engaged and non-engaged with the institutions. It, it MEPs are kind of very unengaged with the European Parliament, but European elections are incredibly important and seen as incredibly important in the Italian political system. The coalition between the Five Star Movement and the Lega that was formed in 2018 was arguably the most unorthodox government in any of the major West European states since 1945. How did Italian politics reach the point where that was possible? And why was the government so short-lived? So here again, we need to go back a second. So again, I come back to my point about Italy being a laboratory. I think it was Eric, it was Eric Hobsbawm who 
who was very interested in Italy and, and always used Gramsci as, as a kind of basis of many of the things that he wrote, even not on Italy, but would, had worked on Italy. There's a, actually a really good documentary I would recommend made by the London Review of Books about Hobsbawm, which has a lot of stuff about Italy in it. But um, the Five Star Movement is another example of Italy as a political laboratory. So Berlusconi was populism and television. He was an anti-political model using mainly television, but also sport and his businesses to create a kind of populist, anti-political political movement. Very successful in terms of messaging and the use of advertising. And then you have social media. And social media creates a new opportunity for populism. And into this well, this emptiness of the Berlusconi years, you get a man called Beppe Grillo, who works very closely with a kind of um, some internet gurus. Grillo was a very successful comedian, kind of quite angry comedian, who'd been sort of banned from TV because he called the Socialist Party thieves in the 1980s. It had a kind of rebellious label attached to him. Big hair, crazy guy, funny. Um, and he kind of starts to... It's a bit like that film Network. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! In his comedy events, which are massive, get tons of people there. He starts to go political in them and starts to attack big business. And he starts to, in his early ones, he smashes up computers, literally on stage with a baseball bat. And then he braces the internet and says, the internet is where democracy is. It's the only place where we can get free speech. You know, this is before Trump has entered politics. His blog becomes very successful, very violent language, anti-political, anti-big business, anti-corruption, anti any kind of party. He has these things called fuck off days where everybody gets in the square and says fuck off to politicians. Literally, that's what they do. And it's very successful. It's very mobilizing. It mobilizes a lot of angry people who feel they've been left out after the financial crash in particular, uh, which is very, very deep in Italy, the crisis after 2008. And eventually he decides to form a kind of movement out of this. He never calls it a party. It's a very purist movement. It's almost, almost a cult. And there's a kind of cult of the internet around it. They always say the web will decide whether we're going to do this or that. So they have these kind of web votes. And they're, they're very purist in times. One of their main political sort of points is about the cost of politics, the corruption, the personal corruption of politicians. So they say... When, when we get our candidates elected who aren't politicians, they're going to only take a little bit of their wage. They're not going to take any expenses. They're not going to spend anything on politics at all. So it's kind of very purist, almost like monk. They're like monks being elected to, to parliament. They first win in local elections in a place called Parma, uh, which is a kind of very rich, ex-left-wing town, out of nowhere. No one was expecting it. And in fact, I, I thought it was a joke. I thought, this is, this is not even true. This can't even happen. And then they sweep to power in places like Rome. I mean, with some candidate no one ever heard of. And in fact, was totally a disaster as mayor, by the way, because had no political experience. So all these very inexperienced people who come from civil society go into politics out of nowhere, but they say they're not going to politics. The Five Star Movement, absolutely fascinating thing. 
Social media is what they use. Blogs, they vote on social media for their candidates. They chat people out if they take £10 for a train fare. And they're kind of like a foreign tribe when they get elected to Rome. And that's a kind of far too short way of saying that this movement kind of crashes through Italian politics in a sort of revolutionary way. And no one knows what it is. No one can understand it. No one really takes it seriously. And they actually win the election in 2018. The system doesn't allow really anyone to win by then. But the other big force there is the Lega, who have transformed themselves in the meantime into a national party. They were always very regionalist, northern, and they were taken over by a man, very right-wing politician called Matteo Salvini. And he transformed them into a national party. And particularly his main sort of propaganda point was racism and anti-immigration. And that, that was extremely popular in Italy in the, um, in the period, particularly the propaganda against boats landing in uh, the south of Italy, the refugee crisis and the mass mi- foreign migration which he railed against and blamed for crime and all that kind of thing. These two parties, these, they're not really parties, organisations, won the election in 2018, formed a kind of crazy alliance, an alliance of opposites to some extent, a populist, a very populist alliance, one of the most populist governments to be elected in uh, post-war Italy. But it was, I suppose, looking back, it was never really going to last. At the time, it felt very dangerous. Um, more dangerous than Berlusconi's governments because these people really had an agenda. Uh, Salvini, for example, you know, began literally blocking the boats of refugees coming in as part of his political message, and this led to people dying and led to court cases. And you know, that this kind of paralysed. You know, he criminalised the people saving the refugees in in the Mediterranean. So the very extraordinary moment, the Five Star Movement managed to pass a law, a referendum, cutting the number of parliamentarians by 200. So their whole point about the cost of politics was was delivered. And they also were in favour of very, very generous welfare payments, which was one of the reasons they got elected. Um, so this kind of coalition, which was elected in 2018, collapsed when Salvini got far too big for his boots. And... Um, I was in. I was on holiday, but following this, um, it, it's it's again perhaps one of those moments when the ver- you're on the verge of using stereotypes. But he actually gave a series of press conferences on the beach in his swimming costume, saying that he was pulling out of the alliance because he wanted an election and he wanted what he called full power to carry on. So he wanted to be in charge of everything. He wanted to be prime minister, and he he thought by pulling the plug on that coalition, that would work. But what actually happened, which he wasn't expecting at all, was that the Five Star Movement formed an alliance with the left, the Democratic Party, as it it was then known, and formed a new government, and Salvini was excluded, which in many ways was hilarious because um, Salvini's whole master plan had proven to be um, a disaster. He, It's often referred to as by the name of the, the disco on the beach where he was often interviewed. In, in, in his holiday, near his holiday home in, I think it was in Tuscany. So that populist alliance, perhaps not surprisingly, was very short-lived. And in the meantime, the Five Star Movement itself, I think, has reached a peak uh, at that time. 
the wave of the five star movement it's one of those cautionary tales where the populist wave if it's built on nothing cannot last you know you need at the end of the day you do still need some sort of organization you do still need kind of institutional commitment and an understanding of the system and the five star movement didn't have any of that and uh, i think it's a fascinating case study they're still around but i think the chances they they lost a lot of those big cities that they'd won in that way they lost rome they lost turin and um you know that that way i think we'll look back and think wow this is amazing that this organization or whatever it is won the election there's also a lot of scandal that's hit them uh personal scandal and political scandal and a lot of the people they they elected were totally unfit i mean they went people went and looked through their social media and realized that they'd elected people for example a number of them are anti-vax and that's a very powerful part of their movement so it's that kind of combination of a lot of kind of very cranky conspiracy theories that have come together one of the bravest challenges to the xenophobic discourse of politicians like matteo salvini has come from the mayor of a small town in calabria domenico lucano saw immigrants and refugees not as a threat but as people who could help rejuvenate his town riace this afp report from 2012 publicized the experiments This tiny seaside town in southern Italy has just under 2000 residents. Yet more than 10% of them come from abroad. Instead of hostility though, people in Riaccio welcoming the foreigners with open arms. With the help of funding by the Calabrian regional government, they're providing homes, jobs and schooling to many of the new arrivals. Abbiamo recuperato la scuola. We've been able to reopen the school. We've been able to open a lot of small craft shops staffed by people from the village together with the immigrants, but we've also communicated a message of humanity to the world. The village of Riace is an exception in Italy where anti-immigrant sentiment dominates the political debate. Here instead of xenophobia, locals see the immigrants as an opportunity for growth. Many people here have been able to get back into work. I'm a graduate, but I was unemployed. Then associations were created to help immigrants, and I was lucky enough to find work with one of them. And the village looks set to grow. Riace is offering a home to 100 refugees who've just arrived in Italy, having fled the fighting in Libya. The good example set by Lucano and Riace was a red rag for those who were politically invested in scapegoating immigrants. Prosecutors brought an absurd set of charges against Lucano, accusing him of corruption. To general astonishment, an Italian court found Lucano guilty last October. It gave him a 13-year prison sentence. Euronews reported on Lucano's return to his hometown. The former mayor of Riace in southern Italy returned to the town after he received a 13-year prison sentence for fraud and embezzlement. Domenico Mimo Lucano was emotional as he spoke to a supportive crowd. I can't take it. The streets are full of people who are outraged. They are outraged. They want to write to the pope, to the president of the republic. That's what they want to do. Lucano is currently under house arrest, awaiting an appeal against his conviction. At the end of 2011, Italy at that point had a technocratic government that was headed by a banker whose name was Mario. And at the end of 2021, um on the surface nothing appeared to have changed except for Mario's surname. 
Is it viable for Italian politics to continue reverting to that kind of technocratic model of government when problems arise in the political system? Or is it another example of that phrase that we heard so often during the Eurozone crisis, kicking the can down the road? It's a great question. Um, And I think it's useful to think of post-democracy when you're talking about Italy. Colin Crouch's book, um, I think, is very relevant here. This, you could even go back to the... the nineties, you know, during Tangentopoli, a lot of there was a kind of reaching out for the technocrat. At that point, it was a banker called Ciampi, um, who later became president of Italy, and he was kind of like, "We need the technocrat. We need the banker to kind of sort us out. Politicians can't do it, and we need the banker to give us our medicine." And this becomes very popular on the left because the left likes order, the kind of traditional left, and many many left voters like a sense of order and that the rules are being followed and that, you know, some sort of um, uh, regulations are being set down. That seems to be, you know, Ciampi was quite popular at that time and it was a very popular president of Italy when he took over as, as president. So Mario Monti came into power really pushed by the EU elites on the back of the disaster of Berlusconi basically couldn't cope with economic crisis, had no tools for coping with economic crisis and was totally sort of detached from any kind of EU policy on that. So he was basically kicked out by the president in what, I mean, I was delighted. I didn't want Berlusconi in power, but it was a slightly dodgy democratic moment given that he had actually won the election and was sort of sacked. Uh, And this guy, Mario Monti, who hadn't won any kind of election, was brought in, who was a sort of EU insider and technocrat. And for a brief period, Monty was incredibly popular. He said, I'm not having any politicians in my, I'm having only technocrats, only experts. And there was a moment when everyone thought this was absolutely great. Okay. And then it was incredibly swinging austerity, pensions being slashed, the highest levels of austerity you can imagine. And of course, this wasn't very popular anymore because everybody was getting hit by it. So Monty's government quickly became delegitimized and very much fueled the populism of the Five Star Movement that we've talked about and of Salvini that we've talked about as well. So that reaching for the technocrat, which is also part of a kind of elite solution, but a sticking plaster to Italy's structural problems and to the economic crisis, failed with Monti, although many of the reforms remained on the statute books and produced the five-star Salvini kind of wave, the second populist wave. And one of the things to say about Italy is that after Berlusconi, everybody tries to be Berlusconi, the way they do politics. Renzi, who we haven't talked about, who kind of rose and fall very quickly as a a centre-left Blairite who loved Blair. Blair was his idol um, and sort of used an iPad to appear modern. He also saw politics essentially as a kind of personal political mission. So nobody can escape from the the Berlusconi model anymore in terms of how you do politics. And once the Salvini five-star thing has collapsed and then you've got COVID, there's again, at a certain point, a reaching out for the technocrats. In fact, five-star movement had already kind of reached for the technocrat themselves 
because they brought in a guy called Giuseppe Conti that no one had ever heard of, an academic lawyer who actually became quite popular, completely from the outside of politics, who was going to be the technocrat. And he had to kind of preside over the first periods of COVID, which, of course, in Italy were particularly terrible. Italy had the first wave, uh, very high death rates and didn't know what to do. And, you know, it was very unfortunate in that. So Mario Draghi, who's the latest Mario, who is at this moment still pretty popular, but there's still the idea that the technocrat is going to sort us out. We want our, you know, horrible medicine and no one else will do. I mean, I'm seeing on the left now, and I'm I'm kind of out of, out of the game a bit because I'm following Italy because of COVID from, from abroad, which is always not always the best way to follow it. You kind of need to be inside to understand it. But the people I know on the left really want Draghi to stay there. They say that's the only solution. But it isn't a solution. It isn't a political solution. It isn't a long-term solution. And at the moment, you know, you have a very quite chaotic system where no one's no one seems to be winning elections. Italy's been governed by non-political actors for quite a long time since the 90s. And certainly there's a crisis of democracy there, which doesn't look like being resolved. And there's a lot of manoeuvring by the various parties, none of whom looks like making a breakthrough at this point. You saw that with the election of the president, the re-election of Sergio Mattarella, kind of normal Christian Democrat, the last Christian Democrat, alive who people seem to quite like because they kind of have a nostalgia for that but none of this appears to be resolving the deep political and economic crisis of the entire Italian system and I can't see any short-term resolution to that either within or outside of the system Um, you've got a lot of populist parties competing a quite powerful far-right movement especially under Giorgio Maloney And then you've got this kind of technocrat who is quite old and can't go on forever and will probably not stand at the next election. So it's all up for grabs. But I think the most likely thing is that, again, nobody will win and they will cobble together some sort of alliance, but none of the problems, structural problems, will be resolved. Many thanks to John Foote for that account of modern Italian history. If you want to know more, I'd recommend his book, The Archipelago, 